balancing the budget on the backs of 12-year-olds. This week, we're joined by Taproot's new reporter, Stephanie Swensrud. And we'll be collecting your podcaster card, Troy, because transit is not free for unaccompanied youth after all. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 238. We're recording Wednesday, October 18th. And if anyone has been following uh, City Council this week, they'll know that we are in the seventh circle right now. It's panel 11 billion of 64 trillion total speakers. It doesn't look, Mac, like the zoning bylaw renewal will finish today, tomorrow, or perhaps even this month. Uh, But we'll get to that later on in the episode. Speaking Municipally is a publication of Taproot Edmonton, and we don't have an ad this week, but we do have something new. We've got a new reporter for Taproot Edmonton. Welcome to the show, Stephanie. Hi, thank you for having me. And welcome to the Taproot team. We're so glad to have you on board. I'm very glad to be here as well. Thank you. So, Stephanie, tell us a little bit. Where did you come from? Who are you? What's a little bit about yourself? Uh, I was previously working as an online reporter for 630Ched slash Global Edmonton. So that's, uh, I was doing a lot of you know, breaking news, murder, fire, city council, which was really fun, obviously. I love city council. Then before that, I worked as a TV reporter at CFJC News in Kamloops. And uh, before that, I went to Nate, took the radio and television program there. I reached out to Taproot because I really like city council, like I said, and I like the kind of unique look at things, a unique viewpoint that Taproot has for city council. And then in the Pulse, I'd seen a couple of my articles in there. So I said to Karen Unland, I said, I know you like what I do. I like what you do. You know, let's talk. So (laughs) that's how this all happened. So this, as we're recording, is your first real week at Taproot, right? Yeah, I guess so. I started a week ago today. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, you haven't necessarily found your footing, done all the beat work, but going from murder to uh, Edmonton City Council in the middle of a, you know, several day public hearing about zoning, it's quite the leap, I would say. Um, <laughs> how, how are you acclimating? Since I quit my last job, which a lot of that job obviously consisted of like searching for that breaking news, I haven't really been listening or reading or watching the news. And I feel so good. I feel so <laughs> relaxed, so much less anxiety, so happy now that I'm not constantly scrolling Twitter, waiting for the next big fire, shooting, etc. Not being plugged into that daily news is feeling a lot better for my mental health. And then I really like city council and especially zoning. And I'm a little sad that the way that the timing worked out for these jobs is that at neither job, I'm going to write this article this week about the zoning bylaw because I wrote one about a year ago. It was one of my first big articles at my old job. It was a big comprehensive article about the bylaw. And I think my article was one of the first in-depth articles about the zoning bylaw renewal that came from any like of the other stations in town. So it makes me sad when people say that they've never heard anything about the zoning bylaw because I've been writing about it for a year, but you know, that's life. (laughs) Well, uh, speaking of someone who, when did we interview Ann Stevenson about the zoning bylaw? What was that like? Yeah, like 2019? Yeah. 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 Before election, for sure. You have kids that are younger than our coverage of the zoning bylaw. Yes, that's true. So we'll certainly get into that. But speaking of kids, last week, I issued a very bold claim, a certain claim that there was no way that executive committee 
wouldn't make transit free for unaccompanied youth under 12. And Mac um, shouldn't have done that. Uh, executive committee <laughs> absolutely uh, rejected. Well, not quite rejected. They accepted the report for information, which in effect rejects the idea of making transit free for unaccompanied youth. It's always dangerous making bold predictions about how council's going to go, especially this council. But I thought you were right, Troy. I thought for sure they were going to take this forward. Um, the branch manager of ETS, Carrie Houghton McDonald, reached out to us to say that they could, uh, she could help elaborate. So we might take you up on that in a future episode, Carrie. But uh, we did listen to the executive committee meeting and, and heard some of the uh, discussion there. And so ultimately, council felt like the right move here is to try to consolidate all of our funding and resources into improving service delivery for transit. And indeed, Mayor Sohi and Councillor Salvador, who put the motion forward to simply receive this for information, and several others talked about how you know we might expect to see more discussion about this at upcoming budget meetings in particular in the fall. Uh, but there was two people that stood out to me in the conversation. One was Councillor Aaron Paquette, who pointed out that there's nothing explicit anywhere to say that we're, instead of using this $900,000 to make transit free for youth, going to focus that on service delivery. Like that's just a promise. And he thinks council and the city rarely keep those promises to improve service delivery. He was quite pointed about that. He said at one point, quote, maybe we do need a funding formula to codify that the transit is so significant and, and integral to the functioning of our city. So that was pretty interesting and stood out to me. And then the other one I'll mention quickly was just Councillor Knack, who had several questions, probably asked the most questions of any of the councillors, and was really focused on this idea of equity and, you know, what's the impact on low-income families. He pointed out other cities like Regina and Grand Prairie have recently done this, either made transit free for people under 13 or 17. I'm pretty sure he said in Regina it cost them $2,000. So there's a big gap between 2,000 and 900,000, and I recognize we're quite a bit bigger than Regina, but still, that's quite the gap. And so he sort of indicated as well that he's going to ruminate on this, and we should expect him to come back in the future with new questions and maybe some further action to try to move this forward. And that number, the $900,000, that was intensely interesting to me because... You know, I don't know that there's a bunch of 11-year-olds really like doling out the piggy banks of change and throwing it at bus drivers to get on the bus. So that money has got to be coming from somewhere. And you had alluded to last week that there was a large number of passes being purchased. And we learned this week that basically that's it. There was some confirmation that Riverbend schools, for example, purchased a high number of passes for kids under 12. And that sounds to me like basically a tacit admission from city council that like we already kind of have transit for free for youth under 12 but like we really don't want to give up this line of revenue from the school so let's not do it uh, which is a, kind of a cynical way to think about transit fare policy yeah that's maybe partially true i think the tenor of the conversation i got was they want to be really clear with administration that what they want them to do is improve service delivery. And any distraction away from that is maybe seen as mixed messaging or or not giving clear enough direction back to administration. So I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that. Like you, Troy, I think they should have approved this, but I can kind of understand where they're coming from. I think Councillor Knack made the best argument for this, though, which is that he sees, you know, making transit free for youth. He says he's reviewed the idea and been in discussions about making transit free for everyone. He's not supportive of that. But making it free for youth is potentially the best way to boost future ridership. 
can you make young people riders for life if they are able to use transit when they're kids and they get used to the idea and it's not a foreign thing to them when they're then full fare paying adults uh, to use public transit? And I like that argument, though it really rests on the idea that the service is good. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, if we could combine those two things, I think we'd be somewhere on the transit side of things. I mean, anecdotally for me, for sure, I remember when I was a wee youth at 12 years old in grade five or six or whatever grade you are when you're 12. In Sherwood Park, (laughs) my school was school special bus routes. So I got a bus pass to go to school. When I went into junior high, the service delivery changed and I got put on yellow buses. So I didn't get the bus pass. And there was no single item that restricted my freedom as a youth than taking away that bus pass. Because like, I'm not going to pay $80 a month as, you know, a 13 year old to buy a bus pass. But like, I could go anywhere I wanted after school. I could meet up with friends. I could do anything I want. And I didn't need to ask parents to drive me around. I wouldn't have as a youth imagined that I should go buy a bus pass. But because one was given to me, because those skills were built in, in my school life, like that's how you build transit ridership. I can definitely see the value to this. I do wonder how much we're shooting ourselves in the foot by not capitalizing on this, right? Because if we are building a climate resilient city for the next 50 years, it's the current 12 year olds that are going to be making up the bulk of that city, having them acclimated to transit instead of acclimated to it's cheaper to drive than to take the bus. Though I can see if we pay an extra million dollars right now, we are more hamstringed at the supplementary budget adjustment. And maybe this will just get passed at that point in time when they have more money on the table to also do service delivery. Possible that this could come back up again, as uh, Councilor Nack suggested. At minimum, ETS said they already have some work underway to improve equity and, and uh, the equity of transit. And uh, this will just kind of fold into that work, essentially. I mean, looking across the table, Stephanie, you were... Uh, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed youth just joining Taproot. Um, (laughs) Did any of this resonate with you? What are your thoughts as the youth representation on this podcast, which I never thought, (laughs) Mac, that I would be the one throwing (laughs) to the youth, but here we are. Your conversation was interesting because I took transit frequently until I was 16 and I got my driver's license because I went to school just far enough. I went to junior high school just far enough away that I didn't want to walk. And then I went to high school. I lived in Mill Woods and I went to high school downtown at Victoria School of the Arts. So frequent transit user. But then as soon as I turned 16, I had a hand-me-down car. The math, really quickly, I was like, it's either an hour and 45 on a stinky bus that I have to make a transfer on, or it's 30 minutes in my nice car. The money didn't really make that big of a difference to me. I said, I'd rather just be in in a car. And something with the charging for transit after they turn 12 or 13 or 18, I wonder if that would even make it worse for young adults because they'd say, well, I've had it free my whole life. And now, oh, I have turned 18. I have to pay for transit. I might as well start driving. Maybe it's some sort of you know, like mind trick that would make people be even less of a fan of transit. Which goes back to the service delivery, right? Because if a bus is so good, Like you don't have to wait very long, gets you really close to where you need to go. You don't have to worry about finding parking or paying for parking. It starts to change some of that equation for you potentially, right? Especially if gas prices keep going up. I do wonder to what extent we've gotten incorrect data about the costs of this. Because while I believe administration that the revenue item is currently $900,000 for this, youth still do not have ARC cards, right? So the idea that you can purchase a monthly pass for youth, while a youth monthly pass is still $73, 
as soon as art cards roll out to youth, there won't be a monthly pass available, right? Because art cards are pay as you go until you hit the fair cap. So a school purchasing a whole host of youth cards, that simply like wouldn't necessarily apply. It, maybe there's some sort of other agreement like with the U-Pass where there's like a signing of art card options. I do wonder if the art card rollout of youth, and maybe this is why youth hasn't rolled out quite yet on the art card, is going to eat the lunch of that revenue item. You're right. The youth pass is $73, but I believe what they were talking about at executive committee is that these uh, youth passes they're talking about in terms of lost revenue are the numbers provided by the school boards. And youth can buy a pass from school boards for a cheaper rate. I think in the meeting, I heard them talk about $55 a month, roughly. So you're right. That could be the reason why the art cards haven't rolled out yet, because they need to be able to transfer those fair products into the, the card world. You know, it's nice to have a third person on the podcast to throw to because it allows me to do less work, which is always uh, pleasurable for me. And what better opportunity to throw to our new reporter than Stephanie? This week, you actually attended a luncheon and wrote a story about some grants that attracted three indie retailers to downtown Edmonton. Yeah, so... Three new stores are going to be coming to downtown Edmonton. There's Good Goods Co., a sustainably driven brand that sells nice little products that are sourced from these sustainable, nice brands. And then the Growlery, they're a brewery that's already successful in Edmonton, and they're going to have a tap room here in downtown, which I guess is only the second brewery downtown right now because Yellowhead closed recently. And then the last one is uh, this new project coming from Consign Design. There's going to be handcrafted furniture, a flower shop, a bakery, and a cafe all together. So lots of stuff to do there. There's not really details on when these are going to open, but they are the recipients of this grant from the Downtown Business Association. They are all receiving $212,000 cash plus $38,000 worth of marketing support and business consulting from students at the Alberta School of Business. So $250,000 each for these three businesses. And then three more businesses are going to be announced at a later date. And the only requirement, as I understand, is that they have to stay downtown or in the core mm-hmm. for 18 months to qualify. Yes. And do you know, did these companies or these uh, these businesses, did they apply for this grant then? Or yeah. did the DBA seek out people who they thought might be a good fit? Panina McBride said that about 35-ish companies, brands, stores applied for this money. And then, of course, only six have made it. Yeah, they just have to stay in for a year and a half. But she also said that they all have three, four, five-year leases. So they're going to be sticking around probably for a little while longer. The other thing I thought was interesting at the luncheon was the Streetfront retail report that they released. And I think that found 33% of street-oriented storefronts downtown are vacant. And I have to say, that seems shockingly low to me. Like you walk (laughs) around, it seems like there's way more than 33% vacant. I know a lot of the other people at the the other reporters were saying, that's such a high number. And I was like, that seems really low. I live downtown and I could have sworn it was way more than one in three vacant storefronts. Obviously, one in three storefronts being vacant is bad news bears. Was there any indication of additional strategies coming forward of how we might continue off the success of this grant or other programs to perhaps get that down? Well, (laughs) a lot of the same beautification and attracting people incentives. Uh, Interestingly, the report did not mention anything to do with safety and crime because they said, if we talked about safety and crime today, that's all we would spend the entire day talking about. And they wanted to talk about retail. Plus, safety isn't actually a problem anymore because the DBA bought a van and they're driving it around. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's right. Mission accomplished. This study, it says, looked at only businesses that could be accessed from the sidewalk as well. So, you know, you walk through City Center Mall and it's way more than one in three mm-hmm. vacant and that they they won't show up. Those bays don't show up in this street front retail report. Mm-hmm. Good Goods Co. was interesting to me mainly because they were one of the launch party companies actually during Edmonton Startup Week last week. So they got to pitch in front of everybody at Launch Party 14. And Stephanie, you and I were talking about these businesses a little bit before and like the growlery seems like it'll be successful to me. They already have a business that mm-hmm. is doing well and Tap rooms seem like a good fit for downtown. I was unsure about Good Goods, but then you reminded me of Shop Shop. So Shop Shop is this similar store, as far as I know, to Good Goods. Um, it's near Norquest and kind of by McEwen. And it is kind of the same idea, like cute little gifts and candles and face masks and really fun decor. I'm not sure if they're as driven by the socially sustainable, environmentally friendly diversity angle as Good Goods is, but they seem to be doing okay over where they are. And I actually was a little bit surprised when they were announced as one of the recipients because Pineda had said these need to be unique businesses that aren't already existing in the core because we don't want to give money to a new business that would threaten an existing business because that's not fair. So I was pretty surprised actually when this was chosen because it seems like a really similar business, but I guess it's different enough. And we're, when we were talking earlier, we had said that w- what really needs to happen is just more people downtown. And it's not really clear if these sorts of things are going to bring people downtown. Whereas even if one of these smaller stores was filled with a small, easy to access grocery store, I live downtown and I'm really lazy. So I don't like having to walk the four blocks to the Loblaws, the new city market. Um, so if there was even one just a little bit closer, I would. it would make living downtown so much easier. Right now, they've got these huge grocery stores that are so spread apart. So just those little fixes that would make living downtown and accessing the essentials or a hardware store mm. or something like a furniture store, which I know they have the struck tube down in Oliver. So that sort of thing, because it just makes it so much easier to live downtown if you can go and access that sort of thing. Whereas these kind of like specialty stores don't really make it as livable as something more practical. essential. Yeah, yeah, practical. Yeah. Bad news for you, Stephanie. Struck tube in Oliver closed. Uh, so there is not, in what? fact. Yeah. Really? Um, I, uh, this was a pandemic time. Uh, struck tube closed. I remember going to the uh, Vietnamese vegetarian place across and seeing them moving out gotcha. it's permanently yeah. closed um so that's so sad even more <laughs> noted that you know a furniture yeah. store you know you look at like downtown oslo and see like a downtown ikea and they're yeah. very yeah. cool and they like d- organize delivery like you don't have to have the warehouse mm-hmm. with the showroom all of these things are great amenities but you know if the dba is funding free parking for these new businesses then Problem solved, right? In this part of the luncheon, there wasn't much mention about parking. But if we just go back to the retail study with the vacant stores, the researcher actually mentioned that around these unpermitted gravel parking lots, it's twice as likely for vacancies to exist. So in fact, uh, the fear that the city administration was leveling about if we close these gravel parking lots, it will cause urban blight. In fact, the opposite appears to be true, leaving them unpermitted and operating seems to be doing just fine at closing those businesses. Yeah. (laughs) Well, of course, enforcement of our land use is basically the entire job of the municipality. That's like the primary modus operandi of a city. And um, 
we've been doing that. Mac, I don't know if you noticed, but there has been a public hearing about the zoning bylaw renewal going on for this past week. We are recording on Wednesday, so this is day number three of the public hearing. We teased this off the top. Mac, when is this going to end? Well, it could be a Christmas gift uh, to get to the (laughs) end of this public hearing. So they've approved four days. So there's another day tomorrow as we're recording this on Thursday. And then oddly, the next day on the schedule currently is December 18th, which I imagine is just so they don't have to bump any of the other things that are already on the calendar, including you know, the fall operating budget adjustment and other public hearings and things like that. But we could be waiting a while if either council doesn't get through all the speakers tomorrow or they need more time in order to have the discussion and make a vote. So conceivable, I suppose, that they maybe just put that in as a placeholder and they'll find other days in the calendar to do this more quickly. But currently, we could be waiting till December 18th. I think the December 18th piece is notable as well because that's two months from now. If the people in op- speaking in opposition of the zoning bylaw are seeking a year's delay, well, two months delay is a non-trivial win in that regard. If that remains the date on the schedule, as someone watching this very broadly publicized event, I might be thinking, hmm, it does appear as if we can abuse the process to get what we want rather than engaging in good faith, which is not a value that I want to instill in the general population. So I would be hopeful that council would say, you know, maybe we should deal with this next week instead of in two months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's possibility they could find the additional days in the schedule. And of course, this is all with the presupposition that council doesn't deal with it in their allotted time on Thursday, which... There are still several panels of speakers to go, but especially as we get this late into the week, many people might not show up to speak at their panel. Unlike other public hearings where council may, you know, have to have longer debate, I am sure council has been debating in the hallway. Council is debating through their quote-unquote questions to the panels. They'll have had four days of debate by the time this comes to a vote. So I'm suspecting once speakers finish their aspect of public hearing, we're going to see a decision pretty quick. I think that's probably true. I mean, some of them might be gluttons for punishment. I noticed that Councillor Tang and and Knack recorded, you know, like a reel or something after one of the evenings. (laughs) So they thought, why not stay even later to talk about zoning bylaw renewal? So I think you're right. They will have talked it out extensively. I I tuned in a little bit today. And at one point, as they were coming up to the afternoon break, Mayor Sohi sort of admonished Councillor Jans and said, Councillor, in five minutes, you asked only two questions. (laughs) I'd like to remind councillors to keep their questions clear and to the point, you know, trying to move the the whole process along, because as it goes on, it's a lot of energy to stay focused and and ask good questions and actually be listening. And so the longer it goes on, the more challenging that that gets. So I have tried to listen to some of this. Uh, It is a big ask to listen to uh, many, many panels of speakers uh, talk about essentially the same thing, right? Um, This is the nature of these public hearings is, especially by panel four, no one has a novel thought anymore. All ground has essentially been covered. There have been a couple recurring themes that I've noticed, and I think none was more prevalent to me than... uh, Not actually at public hearing, but on CBC, there was an Alberta at Noon segment where they had David Berry and Kevin Taft on on separate halves of the hour to talk about the zoning bylaw renewal. During Kevin Taft's segment, it was very interesting because you saw Judy, the host on CBC, start to become a little bit frustrated with his answers because all of his answers were very good, very well thought out talking points 
that didn't quite address her questions. So like she would say, you know, what do you what specific issues do you have with density? And he'd respond, we need rough ins for solar. We need EV charging. And it's like, well, that wasn't the question that I had for you. All of his comments in a vacuum were very good, very well rehearsed and very solid talking points, but they weren't actually criticisms of specific aspects of the zoning bylaw. And this is something that we've seen translate into council, especially in the later panels of opposition speakers. I've seen a lot of questions from council. Okay, I'm hearing from you that you have no opposition to eight units on a lot, that you have no opposition to this level of density, to this level of permitting process, to these permitted uses. So can we pass the zoning bylaw? And you get a lot of hemming and hawing from the panels, but no one quite seems to be able to say, these are the problems with a uh, zoning bylaw. It's more, yes, and we need to do these additional things, which indicates to me from a council perspective that, well, slam dunk, let's pass this. Yeah, in a lot of ways, I think this is kind of a question of process, right? And we, we talked a bit about this previously when we covered this, but assuming the zoning bylaw renewal is good enough, like we've already done extensive consultation on this. It seems to reflect city plan, which has been approved and reflects the broad wishes of Edmontonians. Then should we just keep iterating? We approve the zoning bylaw renewal, we keep iterating? Or should we try and wait until everyone's concerns are addressed? And as you point out, kind of using this process to bring those other concerns to the forefront is a strategy. And maybe that's important. And it's important probably that we listen to uh, everybody and that everyone has the opportunity to have their say on this. But there's a trade-off there, right? You know, potentially stops progress on this thing that has been moving forward. If it is the case where opponents of the zoning bylaw say that we don't want to miss the opportunity for EV charging and solar rough-ins, like if we're building units without these rough-ins, we're missing our climate goals. Okay. Mm. But if it's also the case that they think that this will not affect housing affordability or bring a bunch of new supply onto the market. Well, both of those things can't be true because if this doesn't bring in substantial new supply, then you haven't missed out on any solar rough-ins because you're only missing out on new buildings. But if we are missing out on substantial solar rough-ins, then you've tacitly admitted that this will cause substantial new supply on the market, contrary to all of your other claims. In support of the zoning bylaw, it's much easier to support saying, this thing is good, I think this will help. But when you have a diverse coalition of people with specific nitpicks about the zoning bylaw, oftentimes those are at direct conflict with each other. Perhaps there are some members of the opposition talking points that need to be wholly and wholeheartedly discounted. This is democracy, I suppose. Stephanie, you've listened in a little bit mm -hmm. this week. What stood out to you about the public hearing so far? Definitely that sort of thing where this is not going to lead to more housing, but it also will, and it's going to be bad from the opposition <laughs> side. A lot, of, and a lot of the same themes, the same talking points, again from the opposition side. Some of them were able to hit them all in their five minutes. It was quite impressive: parking, heritage, mature trees, traffic, density. It was it was quite impressive. And then it's crazy to me when I'm listening to these public hearings that a person with a degree in urban planning or a degree in like environmental sciences gets the same five minutes as some random person that just doesn't want an apartment on his street. But again, that's democracy, like you were saying, Troy. Something that got brought up a lot was other issues 
apart from the zoning bylaw like district plan. And one thing that I thought was really funny was one person, uh, he lives in Jasper Place, and he was talking about how the pictures for district plans featured, saying in this quite mocking tone, he says, features this vibrant, lovely street where we're all rollerblading down to the coffee shop. And you know, that's just something that most people don't want. Only 25-year-olds want to do that. And I will say I am 25 and I love rollerblading and coffee. So he really hit the nail on the head. But I think the issue is here is that some people in opposition think that people don't want to live in walkable neighborhoods and it's only a young people thing. So I was going to ask you two old people, <laughs> is this true? Do you think that, you know, it's because the, the another thing that I noticed was the split in age between the two sides. The side in support of the bylaw trended a lot younger compared to the opposed side. I don't know. What were your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I'm actually really not a fan of having you on the podcast calling us old. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think this podcast has a predisposition to hip urbanites. Mac lives downtown. I live in Hazeldean. Mm -hmm. uh, granted, I do live in a single family house. So, uh, you know, stay out of my M&O guys. We are hip urban yuppies. But I think nothing really highlighted this difference to me than a line of question that so he had to one of the speakers. You really enjoy your neighborhood. You go for a walk in the yes. River Valley, right? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be nice to have more people from different backgrounds you know, different incomes could live in your neighborhood and enjoy the same quality of life that you enjoy? Uh, well, places come up for sale. People yeah. can move there if they can afford, afford to do so. Uh, and there's nothing preventing other residences from visiting this area because yeah. there's lots of access points to the river valley yeah. and but they to have enjoy to, it from they our have, neighborhood but they and have to everybody's drive welcome but they have to drive there like they're not living there wouldn't be nice to have a three-story apartment building where you have young families you know students recent well, immigrants uh, low-income people in the case of uh, Glenora, no, because that would disrupt the heritage character. It actually would destroy the heritage character and the history of the neighborhood. Okay. It was a very quiet part, loud moment. Mm. And charitably to the speaker, he could have been talking specifically about apartments. Apartment build forms upset the heritage of the neighborhood. The character, right? That's what he means. But, you know, this is one of those things where we don't think about housing type as class, but mm. that's how it is, right? We see a generational gap in speakers because the young people can't afford homes and the old people mm. already have them. And are concerned about their property values, perception, right? If they think, oh, we build an apartment, therefore my character heritage single family home is now going to be valued less by other people who have the means to purchase it. That's a concern, right? I think another thing, too, is... Now, I don't mean to be a one-trick pony, but all of this comes down to cars, right? If we ban cars, <laughs> all problems are solved. There was a consistent line from speakers that, you know, our neighborhoods are still growing, right? People in mature neighborhoods seemed to believe that their neighborhoods were thriving, that it was busier in neighborhoods. And certainly it is true. We see across the city that collector roads in mature neighborhoods are busier than they were 50 years ago. And this is because of our design of our city. More people have cars in it 
individual households. A household that would have been a zero car or a one car household is now a two or three car household. Even though across the mature neighborhoods, we're seeing declines in population as kids move out. I don't know that it's quite connected with some of these speakers. And this is one of the hardest problems with communicating the zoning bylaw renewal. How do you communicate to someone that your perception of reality is incorrect, right? If someone believes that their neighborhood is thriving, but objectively it is not, it is on the decline. And we've seen across North America, the decline and evisceration of these mature neighborhoods from post-war suburb booms. How do you quite communicate to those persons that we hear your opinion and it is wrong? Um, And I think this is the line that council has to be straddling because while they can hear a lot of feedback, they do have to make a decision tomorrow or in December. And if the feedback they're making the decision off of is incorrect, that's a bad decision. I think in the end, they don't have to tell anybody they're wrong. Right. I think they need to listen and make sure those folks feel heard and to really try and understand where they're coming from so that they can make a good decision that will be in the best interest of the entire city. That's the challenge when you're one of those 13 people. Right. And if they can do that in a respectful way, which sounds like they are doing well at over the last several days where they do listen to people's concerns, people feel heard, then I think it opens the door to further education about the kinds of things that went into their decision and the kinds of things we should be paying attention to as we go forward. And this becomes the the bylaw and how it gets implemented uh, in terms of how how is our city growing? Is it becoming a healthier, more vibrant place or not? So we can talk about how challenging it is that we basically keep our council hostage, as, uh, as you were uh, saying, Troy, potentially for an entire week. But that's part of the process. That's democracy, but it's also part of the longevity of this bylaw and the the eventual impact of this bylaw to have the opportunity for people to feel heard so that they can move past a very quick gut reaction in opposition to something more constructive. I lost my podcaster card this week. Um, Let's start wagering up our podcaster cards. What do you think is going to happen, Mac? Is this bylaw going to get passed? Are there going to be amendments? I still haven't heard anything or read anything in the past week that changes my view that the majority of council is in favor of the zoning bylaw renewal in the form that it's in. And I hope that cooler heads will prevail and will recognize an opportunity to iteratively improve this with future amendments. Uh, so I, my guess is still that I don't know when they're going to do this, if it's going to be this week or if it's going to be December 18th, but I think one way or another, uh, they're going to move this forward. Agreed 100%. I think there's an almost certainty that someone on council makes a subsequent motion directing administration to return a report on environmental sustainability initiatives and how they could be aligned with zoning bylaw. I think that's a no-brainer with the EFCL and all the speakers talking about environment. It, It has to happen. I also don't know if it's going to be tomorrow or December. I think it's going might be December though. I'm leaning towards that, which I don't know. I don't I on one hand, I'd be glad to not have to hear about it for two more months, but <laughs> then like I kind of just want it to be done now so that we just don't have to hear about it anymore. But also, I think that we still are going to hear lots about it even after it's done. And if it does pass when January comes around and it is in effect, that's going to be very interesting to see how things change in the coming years if it does indeed pass. I definitely had a pit in my stomach when I heard December 18th that council would still be passing meaningful uh, bylaws on that because my heart dropped and I'm like, when are we going to record Jeopardy? (laughs) This year, thankfully, 
we don't need to have right. city councilors on Jeopardy. I'm teasing it. We're not saying who yet, but we have a pretty pretty good Jeopardy panel coming up this I'm year. I'm very excited. It's going to be awesome. Well, of course, we will be following up with this whenever it happens, either next week or in months, but that won't be this episode. All we've got time left for on this episode is the rapid fire segment. Stephanie, take it away. How would you feel if you were a helpless little kitty on a teensy weeny bicycle and a huge, absolutely enormous truck past you? Asked Rick in a letter to the editor from 1973 calling for the installation of bike lanes. Well, 50 years later, the city finally has an answer to the question. Well, not an answer, but a plan to get an answer. It all starts with a pilot. Jesus Christ, that's a radio voice, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He's got it. He's got it. A podcaster gold platinum card, baby. (laughs) (laughs) The mine bender in West Edmonton Mall is almost completely disassembled and removed. While many expressed sadness at the change, mall leadership was quick to point out that this is exciting and they're looking forward to installing eight new rides on the same site as soon as the ZBR passes. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, in a letter to Alberta Premier Daniel Smith, cautioned that the federal government would be taking efforts to communicate the risks and downsides of leaving the Canada Pension Plan and urged Alberta to reconsider destabilizing the fund. In an open letter response, the premier rebuffed his concerns, saying that the decision would be left up to Albertans, except if there's an ongoing election, in which case she has been very clear that Alberta has no intention of withdrawing from the CPP. Of course, Speaking Municipally is a publication of Taproot Edmonton, and one of the many things that Taproot Edmonton does, in addition to hiring new reporters to cover Edmonton City Council, congrats again, Stephanie, Thank you. <laughs> is The Pulse. Uh, the Pulse is how you stay informed every single day. It's Taproot's daily news briefing, and it gives you everything you need to know about City Hall, coverage of business, tech, food, the arts, and so much more. You can get a little bit of whimsy with a moment in history, which that bike lane item in the rapid fire came from uh, the moment of history this week, uh, 1973 letter to the other. And I have to say, it was a simpler time, Mac. Um <laughs> <laughs> the letter to the editor didn't say anything about like Justin Trudeau trying to take away our freedoms. There was no intense rhetoric. It was teensy weensy bicycles shouldn't be hit by cars. Very simple, very novel. Of course, you can check that out at taprootedmonton.ca. And that's all for this week. We'll be back next week. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. I'm Stephanie. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.